ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Put it in, drop out and then drop thousands of dollars on it. Yes, this week on Download This Show, after much hype, Apple's newest product, the Apple Vision Pro, a sort of augmented reality, a sort of virtual reality headset, has been made available to reviewers, but does it stack up to its stratospheric expectations? Also on the show, the federal government has set out a new set of safeguards to tackle the rise of artificial intelligence, and after more than a decade, Facebook veteran Sheryl Sandberg steps down from the company. What is her legacy? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand spanking new year. I don't know why spanking's in there. It probably shouldn't be, but it is anyway. Brand spanking new year of Download This Show. It's lovely to have you here. Joining me in studio from the Australian Financial Review Technology Reporter, Jessica Sire. Welcome back. Hi. Happy New Year. Thank you. Also to you. And our favourite social media expert who's a bit sus on social media, Meg Coffey. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hello, hello. So, we I feel like it has been talked about for so much, but now finally people are getting their hands, I should say only reviewers at this point, are getting their hands on Apple's next big leap, the goggles into the future. <laughs> uh, we're getting our first reviews of the Apple Vision Pro, and we've got a handful of different kind of opinions that have come through. Just, just remind us at the beginning, what was it about Apple Vision Pro that kind of caught people's attention? What is it about it that, that, that is considered by at least some to be revolutionary? Maybe. I mean, I can only say the thing that caught my attention was the price tag. <laughs> I mean, it was $5,300 or something like that. Uh, full disclosure, I haven't used it yet. But from what I understand, this is probably the most advanced what are they calling them, spatial computers? They're not calling them VR goggles? They're VR goggles. I know, right? They are. So a colleague of mine, John Davidson, went over and tried them out at the Apple Fest last year and he'd sort of described them as these like quite heavy, big ski mask mixed reality goggles. And mixed reality, I suppose, is the idea of like you can see everything that's in front of you but the computer can insert some digital images as well. And so you sort of get this augmented mixed reality Mm. setup. So it's a little bit augmented reality and a little bit virtual reality. It can toggle between the two. Yes. And I think people just frothed on it because it was very clear. It was quite an amazing viewing experience, notwithstanding you had kilograms on your face. So, <laughs> Is uh, it that heavy? How heavy is it supposed to be? I'm not sure, but I know that John didn't shut up about how heavy it was. So heavy enough. Heavy right. enough. So now that we've had some people do reviews of it, um, Meg, what are the things that have come out of those reviews that have stood out to you as being, oh, that's actually kind of good? Don't worry, we'll do the other side of the equation in a second, but let's just start with the good, Meg. I think people... Uh, Kind of what Jess was saying is that they're just impressed with it at at some of the the ease of it, the fact that you can like type with your eyes, like you stare at something and a and a keyboard happens, or like you can flick your eyes and and apps change, or you can you know tap your. It's just the ease. At least that's what's blowing my mind about it is that we're at a place in computing where just a shift of an eye or a look will completely action something. 
point. Um, that seems to be, I don't know, so in what I'm taking away, if you want to know like the the key positives, the the one thing that seems to be coming out of all the articles is just how how cool it is and how simple, I mean, there are, you know, some issues to it, but just how, yeah, just the flick of a finger or the tap of a finger or the look, you know, to a glance to the left can do things. For you, Jess, the things that have come out of the reviews that seem like positives, what stands out? I mean, I, I like the idea of having, of trying out using my eyes as a cursor. Mm. Um, I think the dopest application for this is sports. Oh, yeah. Why? There's like this whole pay-per-view idea of like I can put this headset on and I can be right down like on the cricket pitch or I can be inside a game and things like that. I know that that was sort of like the vision that was promised all those years ago when like Google Cardboard came out Mm. and the New York Times are doing these amazing stories where they were filming refugees, say, running for a boat or something and you were inside a, a news story. This seems like way closer to experiencing that. And so, I mean, from a commercial point of view, sports seems like the most obvious use case for it, for people that are willing to pay per view. Um, But yeah, the implications for like storytelling and interactive media, that's kind of how I see this being used. I will say that the thing that stood out to me most was the ability to replicate what is essentially a cinema experience. It struck me that with the the demonstrations of the of this particular device allow you to have the scale you know you put on a virtual reality headset and it can replicate not just a cinema but like a cinema in space mm. and a cinema on the side of a volcano have they actually got plans to do some of the stuff you're talking about with with sport has any of that been discussed yeah, I think those that went over to the Apple conference they did experience a, a baseball game and I think that was from what I understood, a real like turning point for a lot of people. They're like, oh, this is how you could use it. We can see a market for this. So Mm. I can imagine that being a very useful revenue line for Apple because making these vision pros, I was looking at the supply chain of this and it has got to be one of the most complicated product launches in years. Why, Why does it stand out to you as being so complicated? Well, I think all the components in the headset are customised. So they all need to be made to spec at all of these different factories. And Apple does most of its manufacturing still in China. All of these different components need to be manufactured. And then apparently because of this customisation idea, like you go in and get fitted, everything is assembled and boxed in the store. So you need to change all of your Apple stores to now accommodate fittings for your Vision Pro and then space for all of these components. And because they are customised components, you really need to have quality assurance. You can't just get anyone whipping up these these circuit boards. And then you also need things like head straps and light seals and there's prescription lenses and just actually getting all of those bits together in a store and then training somebody to put it together for an individual customer who is totally paying a premium price, Mm. that is a big circus. This this version though, what is is not for the general public, let's be honest. Yes. Sure. This version Yeah, this version that's launched, I mean, yes, it's a really high price point, but it is for early adopters and it is for tech nerds. It is not for the general public to go out there sure. and, and get. But I think that there's we have a long way to go before we are getting these, you know, in store and on where it's, you know, mass consumption of this product. But also I think by simple virtue of it being an Apple product, it ends up reaching a wider market than I think other... like. It, it isn't the only virtual reality or augmented reality headset on the market, right? There are obviously Oculus and, you know, there was a PlayStation headset and there's a few of them around, right? But 
the the mere fact that it's Apple means that their capacity to reach people is is on a scale unlike any of those other companies. And the famous thing with Apple is Apple doesn't necessarily, quote unquote, invent new things. What they often tend to do over their, their history as a company is bring together disparate pits of nascent technology and package them up in a way that makes them really popular slash cool slash enormously profitable. Is this that tipping point for, for AR and VR, right? Because Apple are now doing it, does it then become something that becomes popular in the same way that, you know, touchscreens were around and then the iPhone happened and, and changed the way it was focused? Does the mere existence of Apple change the trajectory of, of this technology, Meg? Yes, I think so. I think exactly what you just said. Apple brings it into the mainstream. It brings it to the consumer in a way that maybe the other brands didn't. Apple is in the majority of homes. And therefore, when you see this product, it just makes it a little bit more reachable. Yes, this Vision Pro product level one, version one, is not for the average consumer. But the fact that Apple is doing it is definitely bringing it to the attention of a lot more people. What do you think, Jess? Yeah, I totally agree. I can imagine lots of rich families going, well, what do we get our kids for Christmas? <laughs> Apple's got this new VR headset thing. Let's, let's give it a whirly bird, yeah. It's been seven grand on a present. But I, you I know, there are people with budgets those like that. people. Yeah, sure, totally. And you can imagine that being like the bridge. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the negative things that have come out of the reviews. Jess, you mentioned weight. For you, Meg, are there things that you've seen in the reviews that you go, mm, that might be a deal breaker for some people? Well, it's not a deal breaker, but the marketing person in me, the, the cynic in me goes, so let's talk about the battery pack. Mm. Sure. Right? Because in all of the marketing and all of the advertising, Apple is going to great lengths to hide the fact that there is an external battery pack. And it's you got know, a two-hour life, no? Yeah, yeah. It can be so plugged in. So you can't in. watch Oppenheimer in your little <laughs> no, system, right. can you? You can well, watch you half can. of Oppenheimer. You can. You can plug the battery pack in, but then you are stuck to the wall. And if the whole point of these goggles is to be able to move around and be active, then you are limited to the to the time. And the fact that is it, it is external, because the thing is, is they're trying to make the goggles light. And is, if they're already heavy, will you put a battery pack in them? A, where do you put it? Is it this weird external thing that's on the back? It's just, where does it go? But then it adds weight. So I don't like that they're not being as forthcoming about the battery pack and that sort of power issue. Are there any plans of when it will actually arrive in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of the launch date for the public is February Mm. and all of the manufacturing facilities in China have been told everything's got to be ready by February. Obviously, this isn't the only set of augmented or reality glasses out there. How does it compare to what's already on the market, Meg? There's other competitors? (laughs) Yeah, good point. (laughs) Um, I mean, like, I knew of, like, Google Glass and stuff. I don't know. Ray-Ban Metas, that's, I'm all about those glasses at the moment. I think the competitors, I mean, when they announced that they were releasing these goggles, um, Meta's stock took a whack. Mm. And I think some of the other large consumer technology companies also took a whack for probably the reason that we said before. If Apple, Apple brings it to the market, they're... They are as consumery, as retail public as you can possibly get with a complex product like this. Mm. I mean, like Android and everything, it's possible that other goggles will be more customizable. You'll be able to mess around with them a bit more. The software could be, um, yeah, you could sort of interact with that in a different way. Whereas Apple tends to like put up its walls and like, this is the product, 
don't mess around with it. Mm. Download the show is what you're listening to. A brand new year. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Jessica Sire from the AFR and social media expert Meg Coffey. The federal government has introduced its plan to respond to the rapid rise of artificial intelligence technologies. So what are they planning? What's going to work? What's not going to work? What's it missing? Uh, Meg, what is currently on the table? I feel like we're in the minority report. Like, As in you can see the future? No. I don't know. We're on the cusp of the minority report happening. We have all of this stuff where we can, like, see the future and we have AI that can predict crime and predict future and look at all of these things. And we have all of these warning signs that are saying, don't listen to the AI because it will predict it all wrong. But we're not paying attention. And that is the gist of what I got from the government. No, so the government has... <laughs> wow, you had, a, you had a real moment there. <laughs> no, look, so do the government... Do you need a hug? <laughs> I do need a hug. I need a really big hug. Now, the government is taking it serious. And, and we do need to take AI serious and, and all of it. As exciting as the AI stuff is, but I do think that we need to have some serious conversations about how we apply the technology to to law because it is really easy to be misled. And I think that we don't have enough digital or media literacy um, and people just don't understand the things that they are seeing out there on the internet. And so the government is crafting a response to say, look, if you are creating things, if you are doing things, you know, certain AI productions need to have a watermark on them. We can, There are limitations around what we can use AI for. The horse is already bolted. Mm. But they are trying to put some regulations in and trying to control what we use AI for. Out of what's been tabled, Jess, what stood out to you as being the most interesting aspects of it? Well, I think what they've done is they've they basically said, we're going to release some voluntary guidelines. Mm. So if you're messing around with AI, whether it's in the back end of your company or at home or your smart home or things like that, we're just going to put some guidelines around how you interact with it. The thing that stood out to me is that they're voluntary. Mm. Um, the thing that also stood out to me is that the government's sort of splitting, and like governments all around the world are, they're splitting the difference into high-risk use cases. And so that's like if you interact, if your artificial intelligence bots or any of your programming interacts with like critical infrastructure, like transport, if it interacts with the education system, um, aviation, utilities, things like that, they, they are high-risk enterprise level problems. Mm. Um, and so there will be higher penalties if you're sort of letting AI run rampant. Uh, and then they also categorize things as low risk. And that's like, you know, video games or spam filters and chatbots and things like that. And I think that process of mapping out where the risks are is critical and has been done in the US and it's been done in parts of Asia and it's also being done in the EU at the moment. The other thing that stood out for me was and this makes sense, is that the government's going to look at the regulations that we've got around different things in the economy already. So they're looking at privacy laws. There, there are changes coming for copyright laws. They're looking at online competitions and anti-misinformation and cybersecurity. So there, there are legislative changes that are already in the pipeline. And basically the government said, look, we're going to apply an AI lens across all of those changes and see if we need to augment those uh, so we don't actually have to push entire new bits of yeah. law. Why is it voluntary? Like, what, is that just the thing you do when you begin these conversations and eventually you force to make something binding? Is, is this like the first, is, is that the logic of it? Yes, I think 
mostly it's voluntary because you don't want to squish the market that's trying to figure out whether or not we can get productivity gains out of this, whether or not, um, I mean, I'm a business journalist, so I'm looking at it from that lens. I think... So you don't hate money is what I'm hearing. <laughs> what I'm, saying, I'm just saying that like, I get that people are trying to make it through businesses. Yeah. And if you're using artificial intelligence to augment your business, yeah. um, having really strict penalties and rules on how you can interact with that technology just sort of squashes that innovation. I totally appreciate that you need to have parameters and letting the market run rampant is a terrible idea. And um, the idea of libertarian capitalism is in fact very scary when you interact with artificial intelligence. But if you are looking across how people are living their lives and they want to experiment with this. If you immediately put in laws that are, if you do this, you will be fined. Yeah, you you, you miss out on opportunity, I would Mm. say. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, and it's sort of back to what Jess was saying about the the different levels of where AI interacts in your business, like the risk levels, um, was... Just sort of around that, you know, the the profiling and what we're doing around whether it's customer profiling or facial profiling or or just any of it. And I think I think it's really interesting. And again, because you know, I'm a marketer, so I come from this this background of like I want as much data around my customer as possible. But then I come from the background of a human, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> as if they're two separate, yeah, very separate things. <laughs> they are. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I can have two separate sides of my brain on this one. Um, And I'm frightened by it, but I'm fascinated. And so I think it's, you know, I think that what I really, what would make me the happiest around this, if I'm really honest, is to see if there was some digital, digital literacy requirements that came out of it or media literacy requirements that came out of it. Because I think that that's where we're really letting down, not just children, but our ourselves, our entire you know, our entire population, we're just not up to speed on what is real and what is not and how to watch the news anymore. How do you go about building legislation and guidelines for something that is moving and growing and changing so fast? Because governments everywhere have always slightly struggled with this, which is um, the, you're forever feeling like government is playing catch up. And and then occasionally when governments do legislate around technology, sometimes they they just get it quite wrong. Are there, like, in the years that, that we've seen governments do this and in the way we've seen governments around the world do this, because I know the EU has some AI legislation, is there particular ways in which you can legislate around technology that's moving really fast? Do you go really top line? Is that the idea, Jess? Yeah, I think that's generally how they approach this kind of things. You you define top line streams that would be, that policy would influence and... One of the things that contacts of colleagues of mine inside the government have been talking about a lot are a lot of the social influences and the kind of stuff that, that Meg was talking about as well. Like some of the really high risk use cases are around like social scoring and biometric identification in public spaces and things mm. like that and ensuring that there are guardrails so that there isn't like the wanton use of AI across our um physical real world. I think the government's very cognizant of stuff like that. And I think they are the most important parts that the legislation or changes, any sort of regulation is trying to capture. Um, We just don't want to live in a world where you have surveillance everywhere you go for the purposes of companies making money, for example, or at least, or the congregation of data and power in the hands of a few. That's definitely what um, I think this particular government is paying close attention to. Meg, there's no stopping AI as a category, but do you think that kind of the discussion that's being had around AI puts us in better stead because people are more mindful of it at the moment? 
Yes, definitely. Whenever any topic is being discussed, it's always better because it's being discussed, right? Change will happen, good or bad, because it's being discussed. Governments will always lag in legislation, right? They just will never be able to keep up with with business and, and innovation. They just they simply can't. Um, but I think that the fact that they're having the conversations that they're trying, uh, I support it. I, th- I think that they're on the right track. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. And the former chief operating officer of Meta, the company that owns Facebook, Cheryl Sandberg, is leaving the company's board of directors. And she is one of the most high-profile women in the world of technology. And I felt like it was not a bad moment to kind of look at what her legacy is, both on Facebook and Meta. As I said, legacy. Jess made a face. Mm, uh, what do you I think? I don't know what it is. <laughs> you don't know what it is. I made a face too, though. It's funny. Okay, okay. Well, Sheryl Sandberg, I guess, was credited with sort of taking Facebook and making it a, a really commercial enterprise that made a stunning amount of money. Is that necessarily a fair characterization of her role from what we can see, Jess? I think so. I think she's a remarkable commercial executive. I think she was also the bridge between Washington and Facebook for a long time, which was a very gnarly job, particularly Mm. given the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the idea that this company had just been rampantly ignoring the rights of its users and their personal data and things like that. I think Sandberg sort of shouldered a lot of that um, heat from Washington, notwithstanding that Mark Zuckerberg was the guy that fronted up. I think her Washington relationships were really deep. I think also she was very, uh, she was like a lieutenant of Mr. Zuckerberg, you know, like she sort of like embodied or expounded his vision all the time. And I think that kind of loyalty, I think she was very handsomely compensated for that. And I think she she stayed at the company for so long because she really bought into whatever it was that Mark Zuckerberg was dreaming up. Yeah, she joined when it was a, you know, a very small startup. And then uh, she had come from Google. And I think the, I think the credit she gets mostly is the ability to to kind of manage it as a business. I mean, think about what it is now where it has Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger. Meg, when you look at the the legacy of Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook slash Messenger, what do you see? She was the grown-up, you know. It was a bunch of kids and she was the grown-up that came in and legitimised it in a very broad generalisation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's good. Keep going. But, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of how I look at it is as, you know, she was the one, exa- exactly what Jess said, she had the Washington relations. She had a lot of the connections coming out of Google. She knew how to, you know, the ad platform. She was the one that was not necessarily solely responsible for Google's ad platform, but had a, had a big play in Google's ad platform. So she was able to go into Facebook and, and turn that on and, and turn it into somewhat of the beast that it is today and really make Facebook into the, the company that it was rather than just a bunch of college kids wanting to know who was hot or not. I'm guessing Sheryl Sandberg doesn't need to do anything else with her with her life with the amount of money that she's made. But what do you anticipate somebody like Sheryl Sandberg does, Jess? I reckon she'll go to Washington. She'll be a lobbyist or she'll be I mean, she'll do angel investing with all of her money, but I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if she ended up in politics in some way. Mm, okay. What about for Facebook and Meta itself, uh, Meg? What um, It's sort of entering a new era. Obviously, Zuckerberg is still very involved, but it's it's sort of weathered a lot of storms over the last couple of years with a series of scandals. And, and also, Facebook itself is clearly in decline and they have a suite of other new products. What do you see next for the company of Meta, Meg? 
look, it is definitely a great time for her to leave. You know, she's she's done her job, and it is a it is a good exit because they are moving into the next phase, right? They they have grown up. She's done her her duty. Um, they don't need that grown up anymore. Um, the next phase, look, they they're throwing everything at the wall. Threads, they're going real hard at threads, but they're still heavily invested in Instagram. They're still invested in in the big blue book, Facebook, because that is that is the core product. But they're trying all kinds of things. You know, Meta's not going anywhere. So, so you'd be foolish to write them off. What, what is Meta's next step? Just keep innovating. They've, they've got to stay ahead. They've got to keep they've got to keep the user numbers up. What do you think, Jess? I mean, it's just in a seriously competitive industry now, but it, it has this enormous user base and they have all these products. And I think Meta's probably still a buy in some portfolios. It's, um, I think social media is changing though. I think the the appetite for the customer for social media products is changing. And I can remember, was it Cal Newport when he brought out that book a few years ago? Anyway, he was sort of talking about how social media will become like smoking at some point. It's bad for you, right? So Mm. like the consumer is aware of that now and I think behavior is changing. So companies like Meta who make their money from social media networks, they will have to augment and change themselves so that they can fit this changing profile of the user. So yeah, I mean, I still the, the company's very established. It's very profitable. It's Cheryl Sandberg has done a remarkable job to to scale a company like that to have started when she did and to leave it at this behemoth. Like it is such a blue chip established tech company now. Um, that is a remarkable thing to have witnessed for this per- singular person. Um, I think really her main legacy will be. Remember she wrote that book, Lean, Lean In, in yeah, yeah, which was like oh. how to be a a woman executive or whatever. I hated that book so much. Why? Yeah. Why did you hate it? I found it offensive. Yeah, but like why? Because it it just it was not speaking to women like me. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it was I mean it it was sort of iconic. There is a quote where she refers to it as a sort of feminist manifesto, but it it lean in has become such, you know, it's entered the parlance, hasn't it? Mm. Mm. But I think I, there's there are women that love that book and then there's women that don't like that book. And I remember just reading. I didn't finish it, and I just remember starting to read it and being made to feel bad about myself for the choices that I made and the way that I lead my life. And I'm like, I do not need this book in my life. Totally. I think it was it was a specific book for a specific type of woman doing a specific kind of career path. And I think the reason it was so popular was it was quite practical. Like, if you're in meetings and this happens, do this. This works. But, like, who's in those meetings? Do you know? Like, there's, yeah. like, 1% of women in the world are at this sort of corporate level. Um but I think the book really, like, I think the real legacy of the book is, I don't know if you've ever seen the comedian Ali Wong, but she's like, I don't want to lean in. I want to lie down. <laughs> yes. I think that is, like, the real yes. legacy. <laughs> well, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Jessica Sire from the Australian Financial Review. Thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode of 2024. So good to be here. And Meg Coffey, you know the pleasure is always ours. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I love joining you. You guys. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse. We don't judge. <laughs> <laughs> we do judge, actually, frequently. Uh, on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to a brand new year of Download This Show.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.